to see this. Da, 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 da. Thank God we didn't pay anyone to do that. <laughs> um, should we tell the people what they're listening to? <laughs> so this is You Need to See This, the podcast where two very annoying people force one <laughs> another to watch films they love and hope the other one will like as well. Yeah, you, or usually love. At some point we're going to get to shows that are movies that we hate. Yeah, but two episodes in we have somehow been <laughs> able to mine the depths of our black hearts to still find something we don't detest. Uh, we recorded one episode and I don't despise Ian yet uh, because that was my pick of movie. I despised you before we started recording so I don't think I despise you more. Though. Okay, so your feelings haven't changed. No, no, so that's good. So okay. this, this bodes well for the future. By the way, um, I'm Marlena Goodman. And I'm Ian Buxunsky. Important information. So. <laughs> Want to tell them what we watched? Nope. Find out for yourself <laughs> using context clues, people. Um, we watched the 1942 Ernst Lubitsch film To Be or Not To Be, which deals with a troupe of actors in Nazi-occupied Poland attempting to basically outsmart the Nazis and escape to England. And I chose this film, and I think I have a perpetual both fascination and very strong hatred of almost all Holocaust-related material. I, I'm Jewish. My grandfather was in a concentration camp from the ages of four to seven or eight, so quite a few years of his life, and I find a lot of Holocaust films to be very exploitative, and the ones that aren't exploitative just wallow in their own misery so strongly that, I, not to say that isn't justified or that the Holocaust is not an awful thing, but I think so many of those films are either necessary medicine or incredibly cloying to one degree or another. So I'm always on the lookout for a film that addresses that those issues in a slightly more interesting, somewhat more nuanced way. I, I would say there are truly only three films of this genre that I love, this among them, the other two being Cabaret and The Shop on Main Street, all of which kind of take a sideward glance at it, none of them really in a concentration camp for the duration of the film, and none of them being about a boy in striped pajamas. <laughs> There's a massive overlap between the two. I think this film... so. First of all, 1942, the middle of World War II, a movie that makes humor from concentration camps and actively makes fun of Hitler could very well be an awful idea done in incredibly poor taste. And when the film originally came out, it was detested in the US, partially because the period between when it was conceived and made and when it came out is when the US entered the war. So suddenly, everything that was happening there seemed a lot more immediate, mm -hmm. and people actually knew people who were fighting there and dying. On top of that, the lead of the film, Carol Lombard, died between the creation of the film and its release, so people were, I think, also aghast that this was her last role and this is what she went out on, which I can understand at the moment. Like, I do not know how I would react to this film in 1942, but I think rather than making light of the tragedies of the Holocaust, the film is actually in many ways trying to take away some of the power of the Nazis, trying to take the very things that the Nazis used to rise as 
comic fodder to show just how absurd and terrible they are and actually give some sort of individual power instead of victimhood to the people suffering through this, which would not be seen for many years afterwards. I can't think of another film until the 50s at the very least that really dealt with these issues in such a way. But yeah, so I mean, I guess I'm just curious to hear what you thought of it. Well, before I sort of give my opinion of it, I can give my own little background yeah, uh, of how I was approaching the film before I seen uh, before I saw it. I don't think I've seen any Aaron Slubich films. If I have, I'm not really aware of that. So you're it, very familiar with like Wilder's work, right? Which you like. He was his mentor, basically, oh. Billy Wilder. I, I mean, Ernst Lubitsch was Billy Wilder. We're learning mentor. here. And okay. I do think there are similarities yeah. between the two of them, um, for sure. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of, like, sort of screwball things, mm -hmm. but I can like them. On the more personal side, I'm also a Jew. Uh, if, if you somehow didn't figure out that we were both Jews, uh, we are. And I lost big chunks of my family uh, to the Holocaust. I... I haven't really seen many movies that deal with it that aren't just documentaries. Whenever The Pianist came out on DVD, I sort of half-watched it while my parents watched it and was sort of able to see that this is a very powerful movie, but didn't. I don't have a full grip on it, but I, I've, I've avoided them purposefully because they all seem... It's a weird subject to make into a movie. It's hard. There are They're either going to be too schmaltzy or weirdly humorous, like it seems Roberto Benigni's movie is. <laughs> or, or sort of almost like, I don't need to be told to feel this pain because I already do. Sure. Like you, I love Cabaret, which isn't directly a Holocaust or even World War II movie, but sort of obviously is dealing with what is to come and the, and the ideologies that would give rise to it. And I think it dives into the psychology of it oh, in a yes. quite astute and deep way. I, I think so. I, I remember in high school you asked me, what's your favorite Nazi movie? And if you had said, which, as one does, <laughs> sure. if you had said, what's your favorite World War II or what's your favorite Holocaust movie? Um, it wouldn't have, my answer wouldn't have been Cabaret because it's, what's your favorite Nazi movie? I was like, oh, it's Cabaret. Which, not to get too sidetracked into what a wonderful film that is, but uh, does... <laughs> that should be its own episode. We're just going to be congratulating each other on our love of that movie. <laughs> um, okay uh, that. Does, in a sort of sidelong way, get into the psychology of the Holocaust and Nazism. So I, I didn't... I, but I am open to media that was made during or directly after the war as a response to it, particularly those made with good intentions, which I think this one was. <laughs> like there are, like there's this uh, cartoon from the war that's called Gremlins from the Kremlin, which I love, which- I'm familiar with it. Oh yes, which are these little Russian monsters that come to attack a German fighter pilot who looks suspiciously like Hitler. And that was definitely made with some levity. <laughs> Probably really made for children. But it's it's made to make fun of Nazis and to make them seem like a ridiculous foe, which I don't think was a bad aim. I don't think trying to make Nazis seem ridiculous is inherently a 
bad thing. I don't think it means that you aren't taking their crimes seriously because you want to make them seem ridiculous, which they were. Yeah, it's it's a difficult line to toe, I will say, because I think it really depends on your own personality and the way you deal with conflict or tragedy or anything else. I think inherent to me, and, and certainly to many people I know, is humor used both as a defense mechanism and as a way of processing things to think through something with some sense of self-deprecation is, to me at least, a fairly healthy way to go about it. Now, if that is the only thing you do, if you try to <laughs> trivialize these monsters and then not worry about them as they continue to rise, if you kind of ignore them, that can be fairly dangerous as well. But for the most part, if the intentions seem to be good, if the intentions seem to be making fun of and minimizing the enemy as opposed to making fun of those who suffered under them, then I am usually at least open to seeing what will be made from that. I give it a fairly large degree of the doubt, benefit of the doubt. <laughs> of the doubt. Of the doubt. And and certainly uh, humor is a very Jewish way of dealing with things and processing sure. it. And, and was Lubitsch Jewish? I'm almost positive he was. I did not look this up. I meant to. But he probably was. Right. I'm, sure. I'm almost. I'm almost completely. Sure uh, so so obviously so you like this movie, saying so it was your pick. Yes, um. I I really love this film. I think this is the third time I've watched it, and what? He was Jewish. He was Jewish. Okay, thank you, oh, fact good. checker. I have a fact, <laughs> fact checker. checker. I was pretty certain, but Lubitsch, right? Yeah, Lubitsch. Yeah. I, I I mean I think not only was he Jewish, but he you know actually from what I read about him in the past, tended to put in at least minor Jewish characters into some of his work, which was not something that was happening in 1920s, 1930s Hollywood. He made his first silent films in Germany and then was sort of lured away by the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. And I mean, obviously this film has a Jewish character as well. At a time when most films made in the US did not have, in fact, until basically around the time this film came out. I, I believe part of the instructions made to U.S. filmmakers, I'll look this up and cut it out if it's not true, um, <laughs> about World War II was to explicitly not pick a side and not do anything that would offend. Oh, certainly before. I, I can't say how the media approached it, really, but before we got into the war, America was definitely didn't want to make too much of it, didn't want to really pick a side. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was reflected in the cinema code. <laughs> um, I, I, I would go out on a controversial limb to even say the right one. <laughs> but that's just one person's opinion. And, and also, sort of on the subject of bringing Jewish characters into it, particularly a European Jewish character, mm -hmm. my understanding of the war and sentiment at the time was that they didn't want to make Jews and saving Jews the reason for the war. Uh, that, yes, that was a terrible aspect, but the fact that Pearl Harbor happened and that the Nazis were trying to take over Europe was sort of what was used as propaganda much more so than what was happening to Jews. Sure. Well, I mean, it wasn't... The true extent of it wasn't even known about for yeah. so, so long into it, which I suppose partially begs how much was truly known when they were making these jokes in 42, but with somebody who had people over there. Suffice to say, 
a decent bit yeah. to have been known of what was going on there to his relatives. Yeah, and I think certainly, I don't think the film ignores that by putting in the Shylock speech three times of the, if you prick us, do we not bleed? I, I think that he was trying to make a bit of a point. Yes, uh, no, I mean, I, I find the Greenberg character fascinating. Oh, he's wonderful. Whole. And the first time I watched this film, I was really, really enjoying it. But that third Shylock speech, I remember actively having goosebumps. Like, I thought that was such an effective moment in a film that has some genuine pathos, but also plays most of the film for a laugh, that it just completely takes all of that away and sort of subverts the almost humorous way that he tells it the first or second time, you know, kind of the rule of three in comedy. Instead yes. of going with that, it just makes it incredibly serious on the third I time. And I just, concur. <laughs> yeah, I just really love that moment. It's an incredibly effective piece of filmmaking. And not that the Shryla character is in and of itself not very problematic. The Jew speaking to <laughs> Hitler layered through a Semitic but anti-Semitic <laughs> character in Shakespeare. Like, yes. there's, there's so much going on there. And also, I did not notice this myself the first time I was watching <laughs> the film, but I read an article somewhere about it. I will find it and we can put it in the show notes. No, Which will theoretically exist. Ooh, <laughs> tall, tall promises being made. But the Shylock speech is also notable just from a film perspective in that it's the first and only close-up on a person in the entire film. Oh, interesting. That like truly just like frames him and his face and nothing else. The way the writer interpreted it as was denying victimhood, which I think it definitely has I, that power. I think there's definitely clear that the speech is meant to make an impact and meant to remind you of what was happening to Jews at that point, which I mean, it was known that they were being persecuted, whether or not the extent of it was fully known. And certainly that Greenberg putting himself in that position is one of the few times where they're all in danger at certain points, but where that danger is really taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Greenberg is going out of his way to purposefully put himself in danger where he could be sacrificing himself yeah. is is taken seriously. Yeah, and the last line of that being, if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? I, I would also say what I noted through this watch that I thought was interesting was um, just continuing on the Greenberg thread was when they have the air raid, Greenberg and the other extra, the one who plays Hitler, Stay behind, are the only two who do not get underground in time. Everyone else is kind of hidden with a little amount of safety at least, but the two of them are actually caught in the middle of it. So I can I can give my opinion of the film. Yeah, sure. Official opinion. Official. I suppose I would have, with a movie like this, and I think the way we've sort of set it up as well, sort of have two opinions mm -hmm. of it, one being just how I enjoyed the movie as a movie and also how I thought it dealt with the political situation and the seriousness or lack thereof of it. As a movie, I thought it was fun. I wouldn't say that I immediately love it. But yeah, I thought that there was a lot of nice comedy in it, not just sort of cheap laughs, but somewhat intellectual comedy and genuine pathos. And I feel like I cared about the plot and all the characters. So yeah, I thought, I didn't love it. I thought it mm -hmm. was a very good movie. And yeah, going in, I really didn't know how I was going to feel about the comedy aspect of it in relation to the political situation at the time. And sort of while I was watching, I kept trying to think, if I was watching this in 1942, how would I feel? And I just, I couldn't. Yeah, that is so it's, difficult. I've shown a good few people and a good few Jewish people this <laughs> film over however many years that I've known about it, and every single one of them really liked it, but they really liked it in 2010, yeah. 15, whatever it So I, 
I was not personally offended by the comedy. If anything, I thought, yes, they are purposefully making Nazis ridiculous and kind of easily fooled and full of themselves. At the same time, while I wasn't offended, I don't know if I was particularly moved by its approach. Um, and again, maybe if I was in 1942 watching this, I might have felt the immediacy of it more, but it sort of felt like these could a lot of the time this could be sort of any political opposing underground versus the the political power at the time and not necessarily had much directly to do with uh, Nazis. So yeah, so I wasn't offended. I thought it was funny, but I didn't, except for, I mean, we've already talked about like the Greenberg character and particularly his speeches. And the, and the scene with Greenberg and again, I'm blanking Bronsky, on the other one. Bronsky, I think, I think yeah. And the other one as well, where uh, Warsaw has been destroyed. Yes, and the Nazis that certainly. Are coming I, in. I wrote that in my note of that was definitely a moment of real and purposeful pathos when you see destroyed Warsaw. But yeah, so I thought that there were genuine moments of mm-hmm. pathos, but I didn't necessarily feel like, oh, this is a powerful film about resisting Nazis and what was happening at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think... The Jewish element is what speaks most directly to being Nazis versus other fascist groups or something like that. Maybe the lines blur a bit more, but I do think the central things the film is going for thematically are very much about the rise of the Nazis in terms of the fact that it's a theater troupe and in terms of the fact that everything is about the illusion and the spectacle and the way... The Nazis rose to power through these major speeches, these massive rallies, all of the Definitely. glitter and glam, <laughs> so to say, in the same way that then they try to use the exact same thing as showmen to try to defeat them. I, I, I don't think that would have the same powerful and effect word another group. Certainly, and at the same time, also, on the opposite end, the way they tried to suppress the arts that didn't agree with them. and. I, I thought it was poignant when the Carol Lombard character says, after the censors force them to not put on their play about the Gestapo, she says, well, the Nazis are coming now and there's not going to be a censor to stop them. And I, I thought that was a great line. Yeah, I, I really like that. Even from the very beginning of the film where uh, Bronsky, as Hitler, is walking through the streets, they say, he's just a man with a little mustache, so is Hitler. And I think there's something very powerful about the fact that everybody in Poland is shocked seeing Hitler there on the streets, even though, you know, it's just a costume. It's just this, like, symbol of power, and he's not even that good of an actor, it seems. But if he exudes that, then everybody goes away from him and is scared and everything, and only the little girl, kind of the emperor's new clothes sort of thing, can, like, oh, it's that actor Bronski, because she can see through it. It's fairly transparent if you allow yourself to look. So I do think some of the broad comedy in the film is playing very much with exactly what the Nazis used to rise to power. So I would say in in those regards, at least to me, it is more directly in the humor as well about the Nazis than simply just a farce with those few additional sequences. Maybe I'm giving bits of it a bit too much credit, but I don't think that is unintentional. I don't think that is Oh, no, I, I don't think it's unintentional either, and I definitely do think it has those moments of specificity and pathos, but I I was just more trying to say that I wasn't necessarily terribly moved by it uh, mm-hmm. in a way that you might expect something about uh, World War II 
And I think for most parts of the film, it definitely is going for the laughs. Yeah. I would say that a lot of the film is not going for that pathos. And I think there is something powerful in just allowing us to laugh during those moments and yeah, get away from it. That's except definitely when the... fair. Yeah, I don't fault the film for that. I have a bit of trivia. Ooh, trivia. Trivia! Uh, this is only our second episode, and it's the second movie we've watched that has been remade later. Hmm. Yeah, with Mel, Mel Brooks remade yeah. this one. Which have I have also one? not seen. I think it's one of really the few Mel Brooks movies I haven't seen. I don't think it's considered one of his best. I haven't I seen it. I don't think so either. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I have also not we seen it. We can watch it. <laughs> we can watch it and hate it. That should do it. So listen next time when we tear the Mel Brooks version of To Be or Not To Be to shreds. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I would be interested in seeing it. I think that a large part of both the power of this film and just my fascination with it is the fact that it was made in 1942, remaking it in the 1980s, assuming it follows the same plot line. I don't know how much it would do for me if they didn't change it. It would certainly take away a lot of the complicatedness. Yeah. Complexity, one might say. Nope, complicated. Um, um, I was making comparisons in my mind to Springtime for Hitler, mm -hmm. and... Which I imagine had to, this had to have been an inspiration. I would imagine works, as well. Especially uh, considering he then remade this film. Yeah, and I think after the fact, that is a really fun and non-offensive caricature of Nazis. Like, not just the play, which is supposed to be over-the-top ridiculous, but also, I can't remember his name, but the actual Nazi who wrote the play, who is depicted as kind of a sweetheart in some ways and kind of sympathetically ridiculous and sort of a pitiable figure in how much he still believes in Nazism. And I think after, after the war has been won and time has passed, particularly, you know, Drew making that movie, that farcicalness made sense and is sort of a relief and something to laugh at, but I felt like this movie didn't fully veer into that farce so much. Which probably would have been a complete yeah. catastrophe. No, and, and I think I think it's better that it didn't. Mm -hmm. And so in my head, I was sort of making that comparison. Uh -huh. A third film remade, not That's too well true. either. No. Well, I mean, not to say anything bad about the Hairspray remake. Not that I've yeah. ever seen it fully, but it's the bits of it I saw. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as good as the original. It's very different. Just filmmaking-wise, I have a couple things. Sure, great. I can't say that I wanted Polish accents, and to be frank, I doubt any of these actors would have done a good Polish <laughs> accent, so that probably would have been distracting. But I also wasn't fully satisfied with that with everyone just having an American accent either. There was there was something weird about that. I, that's like one of the few out and out complaints or criticisms so, that I that have. That's so par for the course. I know. No, it's not. That's why I, I prefer criticism to complaint yeah, because sure. it didn't, I didn't dislike it, but it was also odd. I don't know. I, I always feel like either if you make a film set in another country, you have the actual actors from that other country, I'm okay reading subtitles if need be, or you just do your accents. Because at least to me personally, the number of British and American productions of like works by Tolstoy that I've seen with stupid Russian accents <laughs> that go in and out. What was the, what was the, the, there was the film about Tolstoy with Christopher Plummer, maybe like five oh, years yes, back. Like Helen Mirren was in it too. The, it was specifically like, about On Tolstoy. a train, like yeah, something. something about the train station yeah. or something. Yeah, he 
Tolstoy Shout left out. his frames. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So you can find that masterpiece if you somehow managed to miss it. But that was just such a weird mix of less and more committed Russian accents. Yeah, Paul like, Giamatti that's why I th- does one there. Like, yeah, like, I, I don't think a Polish accent coming from these actors would have pleased me either. <laughs> Although I did, I noticed the only, except for the English people have English accents, the only person who really had an accent was the Jew, who had a kind of Yiddish accent. Yeah, a little bit. I, I wonder if that was the that. actor. <laughs> I wonder if that was just the actor or... But no, I don't But I mean, know. he was very readily identifiable as a Jew, both in terms of physicality, like just like if you would take like a Nazi character of a Jew, he would look somewhat like that. No, I mean, but I think like, like they're working through that intentionally. As well, he's not quite as well. Yes, I grew up. See, the word caricature usually implies that like most well, nobody. Well, looks you like said that. that he looks like a caricature. Well, okay, which fine. Not some people do, but not this. This actor, he looked stereotypically Jewish. Well, I, I, I just meant in terms of yeah, you know, I know. The, the yeah. symbol of Judaism in this film looks very much like what to yes. a Nazi if a symbol were, of Judaism. Would if you look were like. a non-anti-Semite but also had to picture a Jew. <laughs> This is what you would think. <laughs> there you go. We we navigated those waters swimmingly. And of course his name is Greenberg, which is pretty clearly Jewish. I know. Fun fact. So Fritz Lang, who was half Jewish, and... That sounds right. Yeah, sure. Let's go with that. This might all be false. Show we'll notes. cut it out. <laughs> Show notes. So Fritz Lang was half Jewish, and his wife was not Jewish at all, and when Hitler started coming to power... His wife basically became a Nazi. And really? Yeah, his wife became a Nazi, and even though he was half Jewish, Hitler liked him so much, and his film so much, that he wanted him to stay and make, like, German propaganda for him, and he realized, like, he needed to get out of the country <laughs> immediately. So he packed, left in the middle of the wife, of uh, the wife, in the middle of the <laughs> night, his wife stayed, wow. and I think actually he rose to some... <laughs> And his wife's name was Ava Braun. Um, his, his wife stayed and I think rose to some prominence wow. within Germany. Wow. That might all be false. But if it's true... <laughs> Fact checker! <laughs> so that's not related to anything. But I would say I think one of the things that really fascinates me about this film is its command of tone. Because I think films, especially at that time, almost everything I've seen, are very much either comedies or dramas. I don't know much I can say in the 40s that are like dramedies or very dark <laughs> comedies there there seems to be a different tonality to them so sort of like the broad humor at this like him coming in and saying the guy walked out on me a second time while the air raid starred that mixture of some really dark and serious i'm not even talking about the joke about the concentration camp because maybe they didn't know how serious that was at the time fully and you know that's very broadly farcical but the mixture of these characters genuinely being worried and some other ones making humor and just the way it would shift from one to the other is unlike anything I had seen from that time. I don't know if you can think of something. Not, I feel like not something about a topic as serious as this. I, that reminds me if I may, are you sort of done with that? So if I may interject, another aspect of this film that I feel sort of makes, I don't want to say makes it worthwhile, but sort of justifies its intentions is that certainly at the beginning and with the narration which I didn't love I wasn't all on board with the narration but certainly at the beginning with those scenes that we said were very serious and heart-tugging of Warsaw destroyed and the narration over it saying you know that like 
Polish resistance is rising to fight. Some of this, it certainly at the beginning, really felt a bit like pro-Polish po propaganda before the U.S. entered the war. That's who might have been thought of as the most hurt and also the, per the country that you need to most sort of support mm -hmm. against the Nazis. And so I feel like that's a bit that you might sort of overlook a bit, like as the film goes on, they don't return to it too much really, but I think sort of is a bit revealing about Lubitsch's intentions. Sure. I do think that the Polish people are generally not very strongly thought about nearly as much as the victims of World War II in most popular culture, especially looking at the early years of the war, because there's not much that does that simply because most things have the entire war and they look at the composite of it. But something that's basically 1939 to 1941 or 42 is a very particular time period yeah. to take. You don't get the catharsis of the world of the war ending there. Like a lot of the films, if anything, begin in 42, 43, 44, 45, like closer to the end. But I can think of very little that only speaks about the very early years, something like Cabaret excluded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes back to Cabaret. Everything. Because the first time the narration comes in, it's fairly humorous in its own way. Yes. And the second time it's very much newsreel propaganda and I was trying to sort of suss out exactly what they were going for with it. The second time does seem like they are trying for something more serious. I don't really see it as something strongly satirical in any real way unless I'm missing something. But it, it was weird. It almost seemed like the film then was requested by the U.S. government to put in some more pro-war propaganda almost. We need this or we want this in your movie or this is what it needs to pass the censors. I don't think there is anything wrong with it, but I don't think it seems as much tonally of a piece as everything else does yes. to me. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> I don't know where to go from there, but circling back to the tone of the mm -hmm. film as a whole, I think one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up and just how foreign I found it to be is that I wonder if that in any way played a part in the what I understand to be general vitriol the film received when it originally came out on top of just her death and on top of maybe some people finding it crude if maybe people simply would not like a film like this even if it wasn't dealing with a topic that was this potent at the moment if people simply weren't at that moment trained or knew how to fully interpret a film that oscillates this much between the dramatic and the Perhaps. comic. I can't I can't really lend much uh, much scholarship here, but yeah, but that seems like a possibility. Purely conjecture, but I, I was just thinking that through in terms of The only movie that comes to mind really is Sullivan's Travels. Mm-hmm veers much more on the comedy side but is also dealing with something with a huge crisis and an international yeah. crisis and something quite personal and depressing the depression so a quite so a comedy that i think deals quite deftly with a very serious topic and does not lack pathos you and know, doesn't the, ignore the seriousness of the topic what would you say is your favorite world war ii film on the oh dear or, I mean, pearl harbor <laughs> I mean, so as I said before, I really have not seen many. And I feel like the ones that I have seen have sort of left my mind. They mm -hmm. haven't left perhaps the biggest impression. 
Oh dear. Can you come back to me? <laughs> sure. sure. Next episode. Next episode, I'll reveal what my favorite World War II movie is. Exciting. Excitement. <laughs> I'll have to watch a bunch to figure it out. <laughs> the amount of work you put into this show truly astounding. Do you have a favorite? Is this your favorite World War II movie? Well, I, so are we counting this as a World War II film? I certainly would. Would you not? Yeah, I, I, I would. I just we were talking about like with cabaret yes. Nazi films versus. So I, I was curious where what line would be drawn, or if a World War Two film would have to be more combat centric. I don't know. I I guess if I am to think about my favorite films and the film that deals with World War Two that is probably highest ranked among my favorite films, it would probably be the Russian film The Ascent. Oh. But it also like U.S. World War Two is its own beast. <laughs> Certainly. Um, so I mean, among American films, I, I wanted to say Paths of Glory before I realized that was a World War One film. <laughs> but I do love Paths of Glory. The thing that comes to mind most prominently is another um, comedy. Actually, this one by Billy Wilder. I love Stalag Seventeen. I think that's a really phenomenal film. Which I have not seen. So may maybe another time we can take. Lubitsch's take on World War Two, and then Wilder's take on World War Two. Billy Wilder had in his office until the end of his life a sign that hung over his desk that simply said, "What would Lubitsch do?" Oh, yeah, neat. Isn't that sweet? That's that's about it from me. I think. I don't know if there's anything I, else. I can't uh, think of anything. Should we? Yeah, I think we should. We end this show. Wrap this up. <laughs> Do you have any idea what you want to watch next week? Because then we can announce it. I'm thinking Totoro. Okay. Let's let's go for it. I'm announcing Totoro next week. Totoro. My neighbor Totoro. Oh, God. We said next week. That's... Oh, yeah. Oh, next time. time. I think we're good. Thanks for listening to the second episode of You Need to See This. For more information about the show, visit us and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash you need to see this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash YNTS podcast. That's you need to see podcast. Our SoundCloud page can be found and followed, liked, subscribed to, whatever you do on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash you-need-to-c-this. What a wonderful website. And search for You Need to See This on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show and, hey, write us a review if you'd like. Have any thoughts on To Be or Not To Be on World War II and Nazi films in general, on the use of comedy in incredibly serious situations, or really anything else? We would love some feedback that we would more than giddily read on our next show. Email us at you need to see this podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, for Marlena Goodman, I am Nian Baksansky. Thanks. Yeah, this is this is gonna be wonderful. I'm glad. We're wasting we're film. <laughs> this is, yes, the, the reels are going by. I amused myself too much. Thank God we can edit. Thank God I will be editing this. Yep. You know what? There was a TV show up. There was a TV show called Heil Honey, I'm Home, which was canceled in the middle of its first episode. As well so, it should have been. So that is actually a segue. Trivia! Trivia, yay!